0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Betty Davis died earlier this month. She was 77 years old. She was the very definition of a musical cult hero. She never caught a hit record, but her influence is still strong today. Davis made music that was uncompromising and raw. Her style was somewhere between Screamin' Jay Hawkins and Sly Stone, visceral, aggressive, and absolutely peerless. Her songs and voice were bold and uncompromising and often very sexual. And she recorded those songs at a time when, well, when women didn't really do that
1: kind of thing. Oh to my broom honey. I used to love it Oh I used to love to ride the rain with the soul, the rain I but a high I but a...
0: I I Davis was absolutely unforgettable. You just heard her music. You probably got a sense of that. But she also looked if anything even more outrageous. Like a funky Barbarella with a two foot wide afro. At home on a motorcycle or for that matter a spaceship. Her band was the best of the best. Larry Graham and Gregorico of Sly and the Family Stone. The Pointer Sisters singing backup. Pete Escovedo playing timbales. Neil Sean and Buddy Miles playing guitar. Even her husband was influential. That's Betty Davis as in Miles Davis. They say she convinced him to listen to Sly and the Family Stone and make Bitches Brew. Betty put out the sum total of her records in about three years' time. Four albums, each a classic. And she wasn't just singing on them. She was in charge. She wrote and produced the records at a time when not many women had the chance to do that. And then, in 1980, she stopped. She retired from music completely. She moved back to Pittsburgh, where she grew up. She didn't do interviews. She didn't play reunion shows. As far as the public was concerned, she disappeared completely. She was like a ghost. At one point in the late 90s, a Scandinavian fan had to track her down in the Pittsburgh suburbs and show up at her front door with a check from ASCAP for back royalties for a few hundred thousand dollars. That's how off the map she was. When I talked to Davis in 2007, Light in the Attic Records was re releasing her discography. They'd had to track her down to get the rights, and she hadn't done any press in about 25 years. Davis agreed to talk with me if I called the record label and they patched me through to her. She didn't want to go to a studio. She didn't want anyone to have her number or her address. It was a strange experience to call one of the boldest and most outrageous voices in pop music history and have a gentle, quiet, delicate older woman answer. She was never less than cordial to me, but every answer felt like hard work. And I'll tell you, every question was, too. It's one of those interviews, though, that you never forget. Not least because after I did it, I got about an email a month for what's now, what, 15 years from someone whose life, Betty's work, had changed, begging to be put in touch with her just so they could send her a note of thanks or tell her what she meant to them. When Davis answered the phone at her house in suburban Pittsburgh... I asked her what got her interested in music when she was a kid.
2: Well, I was writing music since I was 12 years old. It was a gift. Um, The first song I ever wrote was I'm Gonna Bake That Cake of Love.
3: (laughs) That was when you were 12 years old? Yeah. Where did you get the idea to write a song like that when you were 12 years old? Do you remember any of it? I'm going to bake that cake of love?
2: No, I can't remember any of it.
3: Are you sure? Are you not just holding out on me?
2: No. I think it was, I'm going to bake that cake of love, baby, just you and me. I can't remember anything after that.
3: What kind of music did you like listening to when you were 12 years old?
2: I listened to the radio a lot. My mother used to listen to the blues.
3: Did you like those records?
2: Yeah, I liked them a lot. What were your favorites? I liked Jimmy Reed, Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Lightning Hopkins, Big Mama Thornton, Coco Taylor, Johnny Taylor, and there were several others. I just can't remember their names. John Lee Hooker.
1: I woke up this morning. I was feeling so bad didn't know what was wrong I had a pain in my head my mind was so troubled from what I did not know I took a look at my
3: So you were born in 1945, so when you're 12 or 13 years old, that's the late 50s, kind of the dawn of the um, rock and roll era. What did you like about those blues artists?
2: The rawness, the simplicity of their records.
3: Are there any records that you remember in particular, like ones that stand out?
2: Jimmy Reed's I'm Going to New York, and there's a man down there, maybe your man. How do I know? Lightning Hopkins, my brand new automobile. What
3: was it about those?
2: Well, the lyrics—they were really simple lyrics, you know. There wasn't that much instrumentation. There was, um, like, um, on Jimmy Reed's "I'm Going to New York," there was like drums, bass, and guitar. There wasn't any keyboards on Lightning Hopkins, my brand new automobile. There was just, um guitar and hymn, singing.
3: How were you uh, writing your songs? Were you writing lyrics or, or melodies as well?
2: I was writing lyrics, and the melody would come with the lyrics. They would come together.
3: Did you ever perform at the time? No. Did you think of yourself as a performer?
2: Not until I started performing.
3: Was performing sort of part of a a plan for you like did you have an idea of yourself as a performer in the future?
2: No, I didn't really. It came natural with the music cuz I could dance. So um movement was a part of my my um stage performance.
3: So you grew up initially in uh North Carolina, right?
2: I was born in North Carolina. I grew up in Pennsylvania.
3: In In and around Pittsburgh, right, which is the kind yeah. of general area where you live these days as well, what was it like for you? I know you moved to Pittsburgh when you were uh, a a very young teenager. sometimes that's a hard time to move i know my my dad moved from Kansas City to l a when he was thirteen and he, and he never forgave his parents for it um, What was it like for you moving moving in that kind of odd time in your life?
2: Well, it was a bit different because. I was born in North Carolina, and my grandmother had a farm there. And my father was stationed in Virginia. He was in the Army. It was like moving from the country to the city. You know that song I did? Uh, Did you you remember the song I did, Uh, They Say I'm Different? Yeah, sure. Well, every morning I'd have to slop the hogs. and Literally, I would get up in the morning and slop the hogs.
1: They say I'm different, cause I'm a piece of sugar cake. Sweet to the core, that's right. I got a real bone. My great grandma didn't like the fox trot. Now, instead, she spit it's nothing but a down. on blame. Spit on! They say I'm different, cause I eat shit, man. So, my
2: I was basically very country a country girl and we moved to Pittsburgh we moved to Pennsylvania and that was really the city it was much better for me I got to play with with children where we lived out there was no houses near us and I got to play with children other kids I got to go like to the community center and things like that and that's why a-
0: We've got more to get into with the late Betty Davis and more of her music to listen back on. Back in a minute, it's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
1: It's
0: Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening back to my conversation with the late Betty Davis. She was a pioneer in soul and funk music, a writer, producer, and singer who made four classic albums. She then spent four decades out of the business in relative seclusion. Betty Davis died this month of cancer. She was 77. When I talked with her back in 2007, I called her record label, who then transferred me to her home outside Pittsburgh.
3: Your records are really kind of big and outrageous. Um, Was that the kind of kid that you were?
2: No, I was very quiet. I was very quiet. I'm more of an introvert.
3: Where do you think that kind of big outrageousness on stage and, and on record come from?
2: Well, I guess it was just my personality.
3: You mean like a part of your personality that you didn't express in, in your day-to-day life? Yes. What, what, what was that like? Descri- tell me, describe for me a little bit about like what you were like when you were performing on stage or, or performing on record or, or writing songs.
2: Well, I was more outgoing, very noisy, lots of movement on stage.
3: Did you express that side of yourself anywhere else than on stage or on record?
2: No. I think in bed I was very passionate. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, um why do you think it it was that you had this kind of split between what you were like on on stage and on record and what you were like in in your day-to-day.
2: Well, because my household, the household that I grew up in was very quiet. There was only two of us, my brother and I, and I'm older than he is. My mother and father were very quiet people, and so I think that had a lot to do with it.
3: It's funny to think that you have this really quiet household and you're listening to uh your mom is listening to like Lightning Hopkins records with you and stuff.
2: Well, she she was just my grandmother, her mother bought her up on the blues. Except um my grandmother like listened to Elvis and Otis Redding and Al Green and people like that. But my mother, she was more of a blues lover, and um, she couldn't dance. She tried to dance, and she was really comical, you know. <laughs> but um, she, she was just um, the music that we listened to. And on Sundays, she would listen to gospel music on the radio. So That's basically about it.
3: Sure. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about you away from home. How did you end up going to fashion design school?
2: Well, I used to always sketch clothes. So I decided um, when it was time for me to choose a school, I chose Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. And my aunt lived in New York, so I lived with her while I was going to school.
3: What kind of clothes were you sketching?
2: Um, I can't really remember really simple things.
3: I was really struck when I read that you had gone to uh, the Fashion Institute of Technology because you had such a strong aesthetic sense in terms of your presentation of yourself. Mm-hmm. Was that a choice to, pr- to present yourself to the public in a very specific way?
2: No, that wasn't really a choice. I used to um, model. I was signed with Wilhelmina in New York. And I modeled under the name of Mabry. And um, being exposed to the fashion world, I think that defined my aesthetic.
3: The fashion world is, you were a very successful um, model um, during the time that you were modeling. The fashion world is a really intense World. What was it like for you to go from Pittsburgh to another big step up to New York and the fashion world?
2: It wasn't really a big step because I was going to Fashion Institute of Technology. I can't remember how I started modeling there. I just remember going to Wilhelmina. I went to a couple of agents. I went to Ford and I got turned down. And I went to Wilhelmina and she signed me. I started doing a lot of runway shows, a lot of fashion shows. And I did some TV commercials. And I remember I thought, I used to get $75 an hour for showing my hands. And I thought, what good money for just showing your hands.
3: Did you like modeling?
2: Yeah, I did like it. Because you got to meet a lot of different people and you got to travel.
1: You call a trendy and superficial.
3: How old were you when you started to get involved in the uh in the sort of the club scene and eventually e- eventually you started running actually your own nightclub. How did all, how did all that come up, come about?
2: I can't remember how old I was really. I think I was in my early 20s and I opened up a club called the cellar in New York and everybody used to come there from They'd go to the beach in the summertime, and after the beach, they'd come to the club. And there was dancing, and I was the DJ. I played the music.
3: What kind of records did you play?
2: Whatever was current at the time, whatever they were playing on the radio.
3: It's so funny to me to think of you in this situation. I mean, you're you're such a, a quiet and introverted woman with this other side that's so... Um, so kind of outre, such a big thing, you know what I mean? Were you comfortable in those kind of super social, uh, club wild situations of the late sixties?
2: I was comfortable because you were really always in a group situation. There was always a lot of other people around you. I mean, you used, you weren't the only person there. There were a lot of other people. I mean, I remember like we'd all go out together and, um, there would be um, some friends of mine. Jimmy would be there, Jimi Hendrix, and um, Alan Douglas, who used to manage Jimmy, and his wife, and his wife's sister, and a girl named Devin that I wrote I. Miller Shoes about. And um, there'd be a lot of people around all the time.
3: You mentioned Devin Wilson, who uh, about whom you wrote "Stepping Out of My I. Miller Shoes. Tell me a little bit about your your friendship with her?
2: Well, she used to date Jimmy, and she also used to date Mick Jagger. She was on the music scene. She was really on the um, English music scene with the Stones and the Beatles and um, the Who. and She was a part of that scene, which I really wasn't. And um, the song um, was written about her life, and she had a really tragic ending in her life.
1: Steppin' high in a mule shoe.
3: did the fact that she, uh, that she died so tragically, how did that affect you?
2: Well, I was very sad because we were very close and it made me really sad I mean, Jimmy had just died and she died right after him. It was death right on top of death It was a very sad time for me
3: How did you respond to all that sadness, all those tragedies?
2: Well, I didn't really respond. I mean, because whenever someone dies, you have to grieve. And um, I did a lot of grieving because they were dying and they were very young, you see.
3: There's this kind of frivolity to, you know, a bunch of young people, especially ones as kind of extraordinarily successful as uh you and many of the people that you were hanging out with were kind of going out and having fun and doing stuff that's expressed in that song um, but then death is like such a <laughs> i mean there's just no way to there's just no way to kind of ignore that you know what i mean did it make you did it make you think differently about you know your own kind of lifestyle and, and what you were up to?
2: No, because I didn't get high in the 60s. Devon died of an overdose. So um, my connection with the 60s was just really a musical connection, I guess.
3: When you say that you didn't get high, you, you really didn't get high at all.
2: No, I didn't get high at all.
3: Why did you make that choice?
2: Because I didn't feel that I needed to.
3: Was it hard not to?
2: No, when everybody started to get high, I'd leave.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I know the exact situation that you're describing. I can only speak from my own personal experience, but mm-hmm. speaking as someone who, I, you know, I myself, um, I don't even drink, that's still kind of a hard thing when um, you get to that point where it's like either you're in or you're out and you have to leave and I imagine it must have it must have been I know it's been difficult for me at times and I imagine it must have been kind of difficult for you
2: it wasn't really difficult i just leave I didn't want to be a drag you know or a party pooper or um, someone that would be there observing so I would just leave
3: Let's talk a little bit more about your music. At what point did you decide that you wanted to be a a music performer?
2: Well, I never decided that I wanted to be a performer. I always wanted to be a writer. And um, I wrote Uptown to Harlem by the Chamber Brothers. And um, a group called the Commodores, their manager um, got in contact with me because the guy who used to write my lead sheets for me, Sam Herman, who's departed now, told him about me, and the Commodores needed um, someone to write for them because they wanted to get a deal with Motown. So I uh, wrote some songs for them, and the songs were submitted to Motown. Motown signed them. But... um. I couldn't work out a writer's deal with them for financial reasons, so I was left with a lot of songs that I had written for a group, like Walking Up the Road was written for a group, Game Is My Middle Name was written for a group, the group being The Commodores. And um, that's how I got in the (laughs) business.
0: We'll wrap up with Betty Davis after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
1: We have wasted this world. Our magic put a storm in the sky that has rendered the surface of our planet uninhabitable. But beneath the surface, well, that's another story entirely. In a city built leagues below the apocalypse, survivors of the storm forge paths through a strange new world. Some seek salvation for their homeland above. Others seek to chart the vast undersea expanse outside the city's walls. And others still seek... What else? fortune, and glory. Dive into the Ether Sea, the latest campaign from the Adventure Zone, every other Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening back to my conversation with the late singer, Betty Davis.
3: How did you get your first record deal? How did you cut that first, that first album?
2: Well, what happened? Michael Lot? I, I was introduced to Michael Lang by a guy named Paul Ford, who was the West Coast rep for Just Sunshine Records at the time. Michael Lang, who had done the Woodstock movie, the film. Paul Ford told him about a young lady that had written a lot of songs and was looking for a writer's deal. So I signed with Just Sunshine as a writer. Not really. I I signed with... I went to just Sunshine as a writer and it all changed and I signed with them as an artist.
3: How did it change?
2: Well, I went into the studio and I laid down some tracks. Michael Lang heard the tracks and he played them for a man called Bob Crafts now. I don't know if you know who he is. And Bob told him, He's like a, a female Dr. John. And you should sign her, so Michael sign me.
3: What did you think about becoming an artist at the time?
2: I didn't really think about it. I was just really fortunate to have gotten a record deal. So I really didn't think about it too much.
3: Were the performances in the first song demos that you cut as big and strong as the performances that are on your albums?
2: The first album was considered to be a demo, part of the first album. And then, afterward, I got into the album, Michael heard the tapes. Then I was signed as an artist.
3: So you had cut the, you had cut the whole thing as, as song demos?
2: I had cut half of it.
3: That's amazing to me. Where did you find it in yourself to give these kind of performances when you, uh, to that point, really hadn't been a performer?
2: It was just natural. It came naturally.
3: Everything I read about you and your career, everybody who's who's talking about working with you describes that you had a really strong vision for what you wanted your records to sound like.
2: I did, yes.
3: How did you want your records to sound? What was that vision?
2: Well, I wanted wanted to, there to be a purity in the sound. Not a lot of um gimmicks or anything like that. I just wanted the sound to be pure.
3: You had two kind of really amazing bands on the records. How did you get all these folks on board?
2: Gregorico produced the first album. He got all the musicians together for me.
3: He was, uh, at the time, was just coming off being the drummer in Sly and the Family Stone, which is about as prestigious a gig as you could have.
2: Yeah. And the other band consisted of my family members.
3: Have you listened to the records that you cut since the uh, late 70s or so when you left the music business? Yeah. Do they sound different now to you than they did then? No. Are you happy with them? Yes. What are you most proud of on them? I mean, not just in terms of a song, but what do you like about them?
2: I like the structure of the tune. The lyrics, I really like. He
1: was a big freak! I used to beat him with a turquoise chain. Yeah! When I was his woman
3: Do you still write?
2: Yes. I just started, I stopped for a while, and I just started back writing.
3: Why'd you start up again?
2: I don't know, it just happened.
3: What are your new songs like?
2: They're um, very lyrical, funky.
3: Do you think you would ever record again?
2: I don't know, I I think I'd like to, to have my songs done by someone else.
0: Betty Davis. There will never, ever be another one like her. If you're interested in Davis's life and career, well, you can start with her records because they are spectacularly good. Uh, Just about as good as it gets. There's been some great writing about Davis. I I particularly recommend the work of uh, my friend and sometime NPR and Maximum Fun colleague Oliver Wong. Uh, He wrote a great remembrance of her for NPR. He also wrote The Liner Notes, on these 2007 reissues. In fact, he was the only other person who had interviewed her uh, when I interviewed her in the preceding 40 years. So thanks 15 years ago to Oliver for chatting with me about what it was like to talk with her before I got on the phone with her. If you'll permit me a personal reminiscence, um, Davis's records always reminded me of a very special person in my family, my Aunt Claudia, who was... Every bit as outrageous as Davis was and brilliant. And um, some years ago, I was talking to my mom, and my mom was telling me about how much she and Claudia used to love listening to Betty Davis. And so uh, Claudia passed away right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, she was from a similar generation as Davis. And my mom told me that they always joked that, that this Betty Davis song was Claudia's personal theme song.
1: No, I don't want to love you Cause I know how you are That's why I've been staying away from you That's why I haven't called you Cause I know you could possess my body Uh, I know you could make me scroll, Uh, I know you could have me shaking, Uh, I know you could have me climbing walls, Uh, that's why I don't want to love you. Oh, you say you're right on and you're righteous. But with me, I know you'd be right off. Cause you
0: know That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here in Los Angeles, it was 87 degrees. And then, I think it was two days later, it was snowing? (laughs) So I don't really know what to make of that. Granted, the snow was in Pasadena, a couple miles from my house. But it was bonkers. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get booking help from Mara Davis... Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us there. Give us a follow. We'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature
1: sign-off. That's why I ain't gonna love you.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: Make you.